You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Hey, Sportiva, what are you doing over there? Wait a minute. You're not messing with the TC Pro, are you? Wait, you're trying to make them better? Come on, let's not get crazy. Just put the shoes down, walk away. We'll have another espresso and talk about this, amico. The TC Pro is pretty much perfect as is. A pair of those free-sold El Cap for Pete's sake. Let's not forget that little Tommy Caldwell designed those with a box of Crayolas and some glitter glue while most of us were still wondering why our downturned shoes wouldn't smear for merda. Ascolta me, fratello. The off-with maniacs are going to lose it when you change their go-to shoe. And let me tell you, you don't want to mess with those people. They're loco. Oh, wait. You're telling me Tommy and Alex have suggested some changes to make them better? Well, those guys are down. I guess I can't complain too much. Go ahead and see what you can do. And let us know when we can check out the new improved TC Pro at Sportiva.com or try them on at our favorite local shop. But look here, Sportiva. You start futzing with those Miras and it's pistols at dawn. Capiche? there's one word in climbing that gets me excited to tune in, pay attention, and be inspired, it's Babsy. That's right. Nobody climbs like the enormous cast well-known crush, Babsy Zangirl. Nobody. And Black Diamond has supported Babsy and her boyfriend, whatever his name is, through big walls, hard sport, and hair-raising trad for several years. And now Beatty is offering the Babsy edition of their legendary Solution Harness. Light enough for sport, burly enough for walls. The solution is the do-everything-anytime harness. And the Babsy Edition has the rise and fit for a woman's body. And I believe each and every harness is blessed by Babsy herself. Though don't call me on that. So do you want to climb like Babsy Zangirl? Well, let's face it. We're probably all out of luck on that front. But women climbers out there can at least get a glimpse of greatness and feel good in a Babsy Edition solution harness from Black Diamond. And remember, Black Diamond is a proud sponsor of the EnormaCast, and I'd like to think Babsy tunes in once in a while, too. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's out. Out. That's Very a big nice. place. You sold What's it out. Like I'll see. We really should. The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a frayed end on Europe, and I'm cutting it out. Good weather, bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enorma cast. This is your host, Chris Galoose. It is November 8th. About 9 o'clock here during the dark time in Colorado, 2021. And this is episode 230 of the EnormaCast, a conversation with climber Paul Pritchard. And yes, in much of the United States, we have gone past daylight savings time. We fell back. It is now the dark time until the spring. And many of you are probably contemplating doing something horrible like going ice climbing. With any luck this year, I will not give in to that temptation. Although, the actual temptation to be an ice climber is, it's not even really a spark anymore. I used to be there every once in a while. I'd dip into Ure and swing some modern tools. And for a little moment, I'd be like, man, maybe I should, uh, I should get back into this whole thing. But a few minutes later, back in the hot tub, I come to my senses. Anyway, enjoy yourself if you're into that sort of thing. 
On today's show, Paul Pritchard. I feel like I need to give Paul Pritchard a pretty thorough introduction before we get to this interview. Paul showed up on the Enormacast on the occasion of releasing his fourth book titled The Mountain Path, A Climber's Journey Between Life and Death. And the name Paul Pritchard has probably come across your radar mostly because of his accident on the totem pole, which due to rockfall left him hemiplegic, meaning half of his body is paralyzed because it crushed much of his left hemisphere. Certainly should have died in many, many instances during the rescue and everything else, but he managed to live and he spent the last 20 years since that happened, 22 years actually, as a changed man. And that's the bulk of what we talk about in this interview. So we'll we'll wait to talk about that till we get there. But Paul climbed during that era that I think has become so storied from the UK climbing scene, the scene of guys and girls, mostly guys, going out, climbing super hard, very scary routes, no fall routes, bad gear routes, ground up, no rehearsing, all that sort of thing. That's become, I think, very much part of our mythology and a whole crew of mythical climbers that went along with Paul. And when we talk about dirtbag existence, it's it's about as dirtbaggy as it gets. Yeah, and in the 80s in, uh, in Wales and places like Golgarth and a bunch of other places whose names I'm going to not dare to pronounce, but slate climbing, quarry climbing, Paul was actually one of the best and the brightest of the whole bunch, frequently climbing routes that remain as test pieces even 30 years later. And Paul recounted those dull climbing years in a very classic book called Deep Play, was a Boardman Tasker Award winner, and is definitely in the canon of great climbing books that you should have on your list. And after surviving that era, barely, literally dying one time, coming back to life, which we talk about in the interview, Paul went on to climb all over the world, putting up routes and repeating hard routes and attempting routes in the Karakoram and Patagonia and Baffin on El Cap, Kyrgyzstan, Brazil, Bolivia, Borneo. A lot of these places that, uh, you know, expeditions go every year. Paul and his cohort were likely some of the first people there, rock climbing anyway. But yeah, then everything changed in 1998 when uh, he was climbing the totem pole. And in a very freak accident, he was hanging on the rope and it swung around and uh, dislodged a very sharp rock, as he describes in his book, sort of axe-shaped, and basically took out his left hemisphere of his brain. Sitting on a ledge, he should have bled out. He probably did die on that ledge and come back to life during a very extraordinary rescue and then spent a full year in therapy, trying to gain his speech back, trying to be able to walk and do things for himself as half of his body remains to this day paralyzed. But it was an extraordinary recovery that's kind of ongoing. And Paul has a very interesting attitude about it, which I'll leave to the interview, but has gone on to climb again, to do incredible rides on his recumbent tricycle, including riding to Everest Base Camp all the way through Tibet as well as riding from the lowest spot in Australia to the highest spot over, you know, several thousand kilometers. And not to mention the fact that Paul started a family since his accident as well, including raising a son who's gone to the Himalaya with his dad and hopes to climb the totem pole one day as well. So Paul has led an extraordinary life, actually, and in some ways more extraordinary than, uh, than all that climbing that he did prior to the accident. It was refreshing to talk to somebody who met the challenge of what happened to him on the totem pole with both courage and acceptance. And please stick around to the end end for some final thoughts on Paul Pritchard from the Jam Crack Podcasts, Nile Grimes. Well, I was a bad lad and, 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 and I was living on top of a. Well, I was born on top of on top of a quarry where where rock climbers used to practice. And um, my mother and father were were going through a divorce when I was thirteen, and they were fighting all the time. And um, and and so I used to just go 
vandalizing and setting the moors on fire and shoplifting and, and you know I was pretty much left to my own devices and and um and I was rubbish at everything academic and sport sporting orientated so I and then when I was 15 a teacher at school offered to take take um, a bunch of us climbing so I agree because it was just because it was on the on the cliff that I was born on top of and 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 um and so it just felt really familiar and 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 straight straight away I realized that I was good at something for the first time in my life and so that's how I started climbing I never looked back for the la- for the next 15 years I I just I just went climbing 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 every day and I moved to Clamberis in Wales in 1985 when I was 17 and and that's where I met all these amazing people that um that have just become central to my life now you know um you know you know you know exactly what it what I mean by that don't you I mean it's just such extraordinary characters and and I lived there for the next kind of almost 20 years doing new routes on 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 massive cliffs and and it was it it just um it just seeped its way into into my into my blood you know that's a uh era as well as a place that's that's very much synonymous with um risky climbing right it's it's uh it's a very much a traditional place and Maybe not the every day was was terribly risky, but the stories that have come out of that era and that place are always about that. So, what part of you, maybe from your growing up or from who you are, who you became, um, realized that that was sort of a central part of maybe what climbing was about or what drew you to that end of climbing? I mean, it was pre-sport climbing, so I guess you kind of also had no choice. <laughs> yeah, so... It wasn't just pre-sport climbing, but it, it was it was um, very much very much in a, a tradition of on-site climbing in in Wales at that point, and and so so basically most of the most of these climbs I did that we did uh, I, involved setting off from the bottom with no pre-inspection and and um, and and. Climbing some outrageous stuff, and which, which I mean, I'm absolutely flabbergasted that not more of us died because it. I mean, not wanting to gild the lily or anything, or whatever, or whatever you want to call it, but but um, you know, every day someone would return from Gogarth or from or from the mountains, from Cloggy or or the the quarries, there's these massive slate quarries near 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 Clamberis that you can just walk to. That that out that me and Johnny Dawes and Nick Dixon were kind of synonymous with, and John Redhead were were um, one of the first peoples that uh, that would ever climb on them. And there would always be some kind of tales of of, of near death and kind of you know or. The whole whole climbs falling down into the sea, all kind of all sorts of stuff, you know. Yeah, and um, and so that's kind of that's where I'm coming from, which is which is mm-hmm. very different now, isn't it, to what to what the sport is like now. But but right. But if I just can say that I, I'm I don't class myself as a climber anymore really because i mean i i it's too painful with my disability and so i don't so i don't actually you know i'll i'll climb kind of once a week inside and kind of once every two weeks outside it's not my main thing anymore you kind of talk about at least three i think you know serious accidents that you're involved in and again it's like uh it just kind of seemed like it was almost like you said where you would go out and and have these hair raising near death experiences but at the time too i think you implied that outside of climbing it kind of was that era too where it was 
synonymous with drinking and partying and, and trying to kind of like find, I don't know if it was the same feeling elsewhere while you weren't climbing these kind of like crazy experiences. Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about the scene and also what you were, you know, what you were doing besides climbing as, as far, as far as, uh, as that lifestyle is concerned and where that all kind of fit together. You know, in the eighties and Margaret Thatcher was, was prime minister and she, she's kind of stripped the life out of uh, the working classes in Britain and, and, um, and there was four million people unemployed and the, and it was actually very, very desperate, but also amazing time to live. I think the government didn't seem, didn't seem to have any respect for, I'm going to say our kind, meaning unemployed, uneducated kind of um, masses. And in some ways, I think that we didn't have any respect for ourselves either um, because of that. And so, yes, we, we, we really, really were close to death on the cliff every day. It seemed like that anyway. And then when we got home from a day's climbing or something, there'd be... Lots of drugs and alcohol and, and promiscuity and fun, but couldn't sustain that lifelong. And, and um, there was more than a fair few, oh, what's the word anyway, kind of tragic consequences to that. Yeah. I, there's, a, there's a line from your book, you know, and it, it was after this accident where you, you died. Um, to put it frankly, as you do often in the book, you know, having fallen and then basically, I th and, and maybe you can recount this a little bit for us, but uh, uh, basically drowned and then was brought back to life by your partner, literally. But it, it, the line is in, it really stuck out to me was, um, you know, you were brought back to, to come back to the torture of being alive. Could you please... Um just um, remind me of that then, and so because it is important. But but um, mm -hmm. basically, yeah, I will remind you. Yeah, basically, I was um, climbing this climbing this climb in Wenzon, where, where uh, Conan the librarian is, and 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 um, the Dream of White Horse is a kind of really famous climbing area, and um, in, in uh, Gogarth, and and I was. 90 feet up or 30 meters up kind of a, this overhanging back wall of when's on when I, when I I came off because my hands were in water there was like this stream of water trickling down because it was raining but because it was so overhanging we thought we wouldn't get wet and um I was pumped I was pumped out of my box and 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 I and I, I remember looking down and, and and thinking oh well I'm just gonna I'm I'm just going to have to um, take a controlled fall. I was, I was about, I don't know, ten feet out from my, from my last piece, which is, but it, and it was only a, only a, a stop of one. But anyway, it snapped, and I and I, I just remember hearing all this pinging, and then I hit the I hit the kind of sloping shelf, and and I broke broke my leg, and 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 then went upside down and into the water where I, where I was wedged upside down in a, in a, in a, a pool of water, a rock pool. And um, it took my partner, Glenn Robbins, 10 minutes to get to me, to like untie himself on the B lane, down climb to me. And he put me on his back because he's like, a, at that point in time, he was a, a big, big, strong bloke. And he, and he, and he, uh, threw me on the ground and checked for vital signs and, and and he he said that I was I was blue and dead. Um he gave me mouth to mouth and cardio massage and stuff and then and I and I remember at this time I was just in a garden um having the most beautiful time of my life because it was it really was the most serene moment. With bees buzzing around, and then, but then it, I could see the lights were going out, and then all I remember then was this was this like almighty pain as as and and seeing a projectile of like water coming out my mouth, and and then and then that's where the pain really started. So that's what I mean really about 
the pain, the torment or the pain of being alive just because it, it's, right. it was it was juxtaposed be, between the most kind of beautiful moment that I've ever had, really. And I think the reason why I recount that again, because I recounted it in deep play, but the reason I recount, recount it again kind of 30-odd um, years later is because because I now see that I've been kind of carrying that with me for the for the since 1993 and I'm kind of subconsciously mulling it over in my brain and and and, and I it's only recently in recent years that I've come to th- this realization that that is where that is where my kind of whole attitude towards death and dying and life came from you yourself admit to being someone who who can like take and just you know work away at layers of meaning and and everyday things in your life now so i'm just curious uh you know i'm trying to think of that scene if if at the moment or in the in the months after when you were recovering um was it just still full steam ahead this is my life or was there do you do you recall if there was an immediate kind of effect on on who you were and how you were climbing and how you were relating to other people no there was no there's no immediate effect mm-hmm. I, I think i wrote about how, how i just kind of went i mean i think I, I must have been out of it with broken leg and a fractured skull for kind of i don't know almost six months but then all i wanted to do was to get back to to live in full pelt again kind of which involves kind of um, just doing these massively dangerous climbs in the daytime and taking furious amount and copious amounts of of drugs and alcohol in the nighttime and just and, and I mean and I'm sure that I and quite a lot of us really in Clambaris at that time didn't really care whether we lived or died in in some in some kind of oh in in. I mean, obviously, life was just there to be lived, and it was kind of, and it was, it was incredible what we were doing. Don't get me wrong, but but that level of of risky behaviour was not just confined to me. It, and I think I think that um, it might have been something to do with just well, the, just everything coalescing at the same time with 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 the political instability and the and so all these climbers kind of because it because it was one of the places in the UK that was a mountainous place that was also really easy to sign on the door as well because it was postal signing so you didn't even have to go into the social security office every 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 fortnight because so you could actually, you know, I went, I went, my first trip to America, I just signed, signed, there's like these books and, and you just basically sign all these checks and then get somebody to post them into you, for you once every fortnight. So it was, um, it was actually a really easy place to, to live that lifestyle. Well, maybe just the, the kind of people that, that that lifestyle attracted as well, kind of you know that climbing attracted at that at that point in time, and the and the ethical stance of the of the British at that point in climbing, I think maybe all that coincided to to make it a really special place. You know, when we talk about any era and anything, you know, there has to be. It feels like there has to be like these social emotional even geographic things that all happen to come together. Yeah. As you sort of mentioned, like the, the mountains being there was important. And and the fact is, is that you took the same bunch of guys and put them somewhere else and, you know, it would have taken on this whole different form, but in, and maybe it, you know, more destructive. Um, yeah. It's, it, it's interesting to me because we have very, or at least nowadays and, and on my podcast too, we talk about, you know, the kind of like all these great benefits of, of climbing and the emotional benefits, the, the physical, you know, it just keeps you sharp and all these sorts of things. And then there's so many times in our history where we, where we have mythologized these moments in time and, 
you know, revere these great climbers, you know, some of the, the people you even just mentioned, you know, and if you think about the stone masters and all these other things, but then you like dig into it and it was, was actually like climbing was like, in a lot of ways, this weird, uh, addictive avoidance behavior that was in a lot of ways like unhealthy and, and combined with like a, a, a other sort of emotionally unhealthy things. And it's just interesting because we revere it, but I don't think any climber nowadays would actually want to live it, uh, the way That's we, true. the way we look at climbing now. That's Do you true. know what I mean? Yeah. But, but <laughs> over the course of a lifetime, over the course right. of a lifetime, you can actually see, mm-hmm. you know, yes, I might have been been a, a bit of a of a dickhead back then, but among, <laughs> amongst dickheads, but but um, but in fact, there was a lot of learning going on there that is that, that is that is now some of my pro- most profound learning has happened back then, and so it's actually, I guess, nothing's black and white, is it? No, not never, right? And you know, that's I think that's part of what you've learned, right? Is is that there's a lot of interpretation, but you know, the 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 sort of event that this was all leading up to, and that I think clearly is the most I don't know if important is the right word, but uh, you know, pivotal event in your life happened on the totem pole. You 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 sort of have this uh, God. I want I don't even know what the sort of adjective would be, but but. You know, pointing out that it was it was, if not the best thing, but this uh, again the most important thing that may have happened to you was the accident on the totem pole, which we don't have to recount necessarily in detail, but involved getting large axe shaped rock to the skull and uh, a long term rescue, uh, resulting in severe injury that that changed the rest of your life. You know, you you talk about in the book how much that changed everything, but also how much it's brought you to where you are now i was reborn on the totem pole I definitely one once that rock hit me on the head it, i was a different person physically and, and mentally and and so oh my god i mean i give thanks to that rock every day every day for, because because of what it taught me and It did teach me how to how to accept. Well, I mean, I mean, how to accept pretty much everything. Because um, I think even now, obviously, I'm still living with the consequences of that of that accident. I'm a hemiplegic, so I, half my body is paralysed. Um, I'm he- epileptic, and epilepsy's not got. I mean, it's actually. Very, very, rad- it's a radical thing, you know. Um, like in, inside my head, I go to another place. And, um, oh, no, 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 what, can you, can you just, um, can you just remind me what, what the question was? Yeah, so we, you know, I was kind of more thinking about, um, you know, the, the moment of the rescue and the, you know the aftermath in the immediate months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After yeah. The, the accident. Okay. Um, you know, because I, I think about it as a climber, and um, I actually had a conversation with someone today that even mentioned, you know, just the idea of losing their ability to, you know, be an athlete would be this this terrible blow to them. And I think most of us climbers have this. This idea yeah, yeah. that, yeah, if I, you know, if I suddenly these things happen to me, you know, it's this like yeah, malice idea yeah. that like just roll me off the cliff or, or you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. before so, I have to deal with it. It's, it's, it's quite So, I'm wondering, you, know, you, you felt that and, yeah, uh, you know, that changed into something else. And at least my impression was that there was uh, a, a something of a of a moment of epiphany to to decide that. You know, this this is something I'm going to have to face. Yeah. Or, so, or yeah. So that I mean, that's um, so compare those two feelings. That, yeah. I mean, that is acceptance. But but first of all, I'll just tell you that I was in a hospital for a year as well, straight after my accident. So so learning, how, you know, I had to learn how to walk again. I had to learn how to talk again. I can talk for 
nine months or something and kind of it, it, it was absolutely bonkers what was going on whilst I was in hospital and so I had to find it I had to find a way to accept this loss because if not then I would have been like your mate and, and and um, wanted somebody to throw me off a cliff. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I did. I did have feelings like that during those first kind of um, six months, at, definitely in hospital. But I, I gradually came to the conclusion that that um, that life was still amazing in in all very very small ways. And I mean. I think that might be something to do with the blow on the head, right? And the fact that it's a left-hand hemisphere injury, so all all my right hemisphere is still intact, and my, and my left is 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 injured. So, or fifty percent gone, I should say. So, um, so uh, that does mean that I'm very very dreamy, and. And and hmm. not focus so much on the on the little things in, whereas some other head injuries that I saw were during my year in hospital were like just absolutely appalling, you know. So so I know that I am very very lucky to to be alive and to still have my intellect intact and. So that's kind of where I'm coming from, and it, it's um, it's a. I can't, I can't see it any other way, and I know I know a, a lot of people get annoyed with my posit my positivity, but but I actually I, I actually I can't actually see I can't actually see you know, uh, Another way to be. I mean, obviously, I've got compassion for those that that, that don't see life that way, and and obviously, my depression that I just talked about was in no way uh, clinical depression. It was just this circumstantial depression, you know. That what it was still real, and I still had to take medication for it, but it, but it it went away quite quickly compared to this I know there's just some folk that with with um whatever you want to call it chemical imbalances and stuff that it is that it, that I have a really hard time with depression and so I'm very when I, when I talk about depression in schools and in 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 workplaces I I often am mindful that that you know to be to tread carefully in in that regard the the lessons that you've learned from climbing that you're kind of alluding to have to do with a lot of times with facing fear and i think that one of the things that probably someone like you or or someone with you know these very much life altering injuries you know where where life is you know you may not be able to use the bathroom on your own all these things that you know just seem terribly terribly frightening um so it, it, facing fear of what my life is going to be like am i going to be able to find you know a mate someone who loves me you know all these you know when people are disfigured all these different things are really about a fear of the future i think and understandably so like well what is my future now can you relate that to whether you had those kind of fears and relate that to the lessons maybe climbing taught you about fear? Fear fear plays a, a big part in the book and talking about about fear. Um, is that question concise enough? I think so. So one part is did you have fear fear of the future um, when you were when you were laying in that bed and not sure what was gonna happen and what tools you maybe found that you had to face those fears? Well, I definitely did have fear of the future during my my months of depression, but I think I gradually got to a point where I, where I did just think, well, today today I can I can um, 
I can say a vowel tomorrow um, tomorrow I might be able to cook a cook a meal or something like I think that um I, I basically learn how to take to take my recovery one moment at a time one moment moment just moment to moment and 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 by doing that I I you know you heard, you've heard of like chunking um, I'm sure okay you know like ch- being being able to put things into chunks when when they if they seem too big well well I just radically chunked my life until like so moment to moment and that's and that's Buddhism 101 as well isn't it I learned I learned to sit to discover as well you know that kind of there is nothing else but this moment and 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 um so in fact when I when I finally came to learn about Buddhism um I was already well practiced in that in that take moment to moment business and so I mean I should just say here I'm not I'm not a I'm not a Buddhist or anything like that but I, but I, but I just um have a have a great respect for Buddhist philosophy that's all Where did how did that come into your life I mean the the book is is you know that's kind of its method is is comparing some of your struggles and and some of your climbing and you know to the sort of Buddhist paths so where did Buddhism come into your life I mean I'd obviously seen kind of Buddhists and Hindus, um, holy people and stuff in the Himalayas, but I, but I, I never really thought about it at all. I was always just too motivated to to get to to get on the climb. But um, when I came to Australia, I went to university for eight years, and you know I'd left school at sixteen, and so I I, um, I really wanted to to learn how to write and but one of the things about about a university degree is that in Australia anyways is that you can kind of study all sorts of different things and 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 um and I started to study philosophy and and then I and I just took this Buddhist philosophy unit and was just like oh my god what what they're talking about there is just Almost exactly what I've what I've learned by osmosis from rock climbing and and, and and mountains. Although a Buddhist would say that that you can't really learn anything from about yourself from the outside, and that it's all got to be it's it's all got to come from within, and so it's got to, and so it's your breath and your your bodily sensations, and that's kind of where. I disagree um, because a Buddhist would say that because everything's in, impermanent, the only constant is your breath. I think that's what I think that's what they would say. And, uh, and whereas I, I always think, well, your breath and your bodily sensations are just as impermanent as the as the rock that that is liable to to erosion or the, or glaciers that 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 are, that are totally changing all the time and and so i don't see any problem with climbing as a meditation i think it's an amazing meditation i mean that that's the mountain path i mean that that's what we're talking about is this kind of like your philosophy of what you were just talking about is what climbing can teach us that is somewhat analogous to the Buddhist teachings. But the one thing that I actually kind of wonder about within all that and and how you deal with the ego part of climbing, even if we go back to certainly era that you were in, you know, was certainly full of one-upsmanship and, you know, 
trying to kind of outdo each other on these these get to these climbs first and you know certainly admiration for each other but also like you know wanting to wanting to be the best or be the one who gets something first because i like to feel this this way too that climbing is this meditation and you can learn these sort of deep things about yourself it's like a crucible at times to to expose your weaknesses whether they're mental physical but then that one is always kind of like the thorn because it's so full of that um it's certainly rife with kind of problems of ego so how how do you sort of reconcile that mountain path and the problems with the self with the i that so seems to so strongly go with the sport at times i think that there's as many character types in climbing as there is in 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 the world really isn't there and, and um and people climb for all different reasons and sometimes those reasons might be mistaken reasons and and um the same as people might hike competitively or um but but then and not see the next step in front of them and i think i say it in the book really that like it is possible to get a great deal out of climbing a, a great deal of um spiritual awareness out of climbing and mountaineering but only if you do it mindfully if you're mindful about what you're doing and that goes to every aspect of life anyway doesn't it i think but there's something about there's something about risk and coping with your fears that make climbing special i think i mean i've heard it i've heard it called yoga for cheats because it because because it's because <laughs> it's um such a fast way of 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 gaining of gaining awareness how how difficult is it for you to write and to get uh, a a finished form of a book well this one was particularly hard it was hard because i i've i've got three kids and 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 um almost no time to to write but but um my other books really have just been telling a story telling what i did that day that day that day like kind of quite simple easy writing really even if it is still quite compelling whereas this book i mean there's there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of philosophy in there that i that i felt i knew but i but i had to go back and read all these books i've you know i've got i've got so many philosophy books now that i kind of used for for um for research the more that i researched one aspect of of some philosophy it just opened it just opened this door where i would just go down this rabbit hole so that's really why this book took me 6 years to write but it was is a really lovely 6 years and and i wouldn't have spent it any differently but and Ed Douglas, my 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 editor, he reeled me in from some of my more way out flights of fancy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah th- that's what I was going to ask you. If somebody was there to help you, <laughs> well, help cast you a line and bring you back. Yeah, basically, I wrote the book and I showed it to Ed, who who um who got me to got me to cut bits of the, of my more kind of way out thoughts i can't remember what they were now i think there was some about some about universal consciousness and stuff yeah pan pan (laughs) pan psychism yeah (laughs) i think he left some of it in there but not 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 my yeah not my more way out stuff about the rocks talking to you and stuff (laughs) (laughs) because of my memory problems i actually don't really know what i what I what I've written, I can't rem- I can't recall what I've written so well, you know. And so it's actually I am kind of mm-hmm. shooting in the dark as far as kind of questions. I mean, I do know my story, but but uh, mm-hmm. but it, it it would have been good to have got a, a couple of a couple of quotes from other people. I was thinking actually. The, of what of what um, other people have said about about fear and death 
and stuff. But mm. yeah, probably not though, because that's just that's just kind of some old nineteenth century footy duddies, isn't it? Right. <laughs> when you were back climbing in in the UK and coming up as a climber, like what intrigued you about coming and climbing in the states? Where did you want to go? I came on my own, and I landed in LA, and I, and and went straight to Joshua Tree. I think I'd, I'd seen an article in by John Backer in in um, High magazine, I guess, and in, in in the UK, and 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 um, just wanted to experience some kind of Californian rock. But I mean, I, I ended up being there for six months, well, spending oh, well maybe three months in 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 um, Waco tanks with getting to know getting to know. Um, Todd Skinner and Paul Piana really well, and then we went up to the up north to Oregon, and we, and and I don't know. This was it. When was it? This was in '85. So just as the uh, the dawn of kind of of that whole Smith Rock scene and climbing with with um, the Metolius crowd and, and Scott Scott Franklin and Darius Azin, Alan Watts, and then um, yeah, just just. Um, so the whole, that whole kind of that whole western western vibe, yeah, very very nice. Did you get to Yosemite? Not on that trip. I mean, uh, on on s- uh, subsequent trips in the nineties, I, I I went to Yosemite mm-hmm. and did a new route on El Cap called a drift. Kind of a series of variations, really, but it, it, it encompassed a, a, the first eight pitches of the Don Wall. I think I think it was um, Kevin who, who 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 was stripping heads in a fall on 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 a drift in the movie. Yeah. So you went back to climb the totem pole, eighteen years later, and you know in in the book you admit that you you can't quite uh, necessarily put it succinctly at least why that became important to you, and again you know, couched in this idea of letting go of some of these things or, or not having expectations around, you know, it's not like you were there for revenge or anything like that, you know? I mean, I'm just a great believer in gut, gut feelings and instincts. And, and, and if, if, if you feel like doing it and, and your heart tells you to, you probably should do it. And ever since that, ever since I, that that day, five or six years ago, I've, I've um, I'm definitely less less worried about things, and and I do see the bigger picture even more. And, and um, it's hard to know whether that's also to do with the, with my my meditation practice, but but I I saw that it was important for me to finish what I started. You know, eighteen years before, and and I um, even if I couldn't put it into words, and 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 it's, it has improved my life no end. I mean, as a disabled person, I, I take lots of shit with with of um, like people being suspicious of me, and um, when I'm taking photos of my son at the school grounds, or or, or at, at the soccer pitch, or looking for my daughter in the school grounds, or and I, I've even been um, attacked physically um, on two occasions now, and I even can see why that happens, and 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 don't hold any animosity towards those people. And I would have done five years ago, six years ago. It just, I feel like going back to the, the to a place that has done me so much harm, and yet. Is very very important for me, and 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 I think I might have even ended up ended the book by saying that it did me so much good. Do you still do your pilgrimage out there, or was that did that put that to rest as well? Oh no, no, I still do you it. Talked about returning there. I still, yeah. I still, I still go every every year on on, on February the thirteenth, and in fact, my my son wants to climb it when he's. When he's eighteen, he's nearly fifteen now. So, I might I might do it again in three or four years' time. So, you know, somewhere in this uh, in this period, 
as you've grown, you found, um, you found cycling, you found the, uh, you know, the trike and, um, have done some amazing journeys on, on, on that. It, it seems like it feels like a discovery. It feels like you, you found, uh, I don't know. It, it feels like it's become this really important part of your life. These, these long trips on the, on the trike. So can you talk a little bit about that, about how you kind of like decided that that would be part of your life and, and what it means to you to be able to do these, these trips on this bike? I think I said that, that climbing was, was painful for me. I mean, it, it actually is. So I just do it as a, as a challenge really. But, but cycling my trike is not painful at all. So I actually, I do, I do love doing it. I do miss that kind of poetic dance of of, of rock climbing. I, I, I just I just can't get it anymore. When when I climb, you should see me climb. You know, I'm so kind of I'm just rubbish at it, and kind of you know, it takes me it takes me a, a long time to put to put my foot on on a hold, and the hold might be this, like a, a shoebox size hold. You know, it's it's really hard. Well, so, I I saw the I saw the footage of you. Um, ju- it's a little bit of footage of you jugging on the totem pole, and it looked <laughs> it looked totally normal to me. <laughs> well, that's good. Either, you know, most people, you know, it's that's what it looks like. <laughs> so, that's good to know. Um, anyhow, just yeah, yeah. That's good to know because Andy Andy Kirkpatrick told told me told me that he that um that that my. My technique and my system was a mess. Anyway, but yeah, the, back to the trike. I mean, does it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, does it play an important role for you as far as challenge and and adventure and freedom and and things like that? It does. Yeah. Um, I I normally I normally try to go with with other disabled people, and so in Tibet I was with this on the on the on the. Um, Everest Base Camp ride. I was with I was with this woman with arthritis, and 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 on the on the lowest to highest um, from Lake Air or Katitanda to to Mount Kosciuszko. That was on a tandem trike with a with a blind guy on the bike, my mate Duncan, and so I do use it as a kind of vehicle for. Disability awareness, basically, yeah, and it's really good for that because these trips often take kind of months to lead up to, you know. So it's it's so you can kind of get a lot of get a lot of awareness going. Yeah, is it easy to talk these people into doing this? Because I feel like you're the kind of guy that that <laughs> like when the phone rings and it's your number, they kind of maybe get a little nervous to answer to see. <laughs> See what you've got on, on your mind. I think I think they do get a little bit nervous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> although, ne- although next June, that's that's um, next June, we're going to me and me and this blind friend and and um, a guy with cystic fibrosis and another head injury who's all over the place. Very very funny. We're we're going to do a, a walk, a long distance walk along the. The spine of the West Macdonald Ranges, kind of out out in the out in the Australian desert. So that's that's what we that's yeah next June. So that's what we're going to do next. It's pretty hard being in Australia at the moment because nobody's allowed in or out, and it, and it's it's um so we have got to look to um domestic kind of adventures, which has actually been quite an eye opener in itself. I think. Mm. Because I, yeah, I mean, it's a, a, a guy like you who's climbed worldwide and traveled so much. It's yeah, it's hard to remember that there's amazing things in your well, Australia. It's big enough that it's not really your backyard, but uh, but yeah, <laughs> no, domestically, no. yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you've you've published this book. I, I believe it's your fourth book. Yeah, fourth book. Well, you talk a lot about Buddhist wisdom in there, and that a lot of times confronting fear involves wisdom. You know, you you wrote this book. It, it's it's essentially again amusing, a sort of a, a melding of climbing with some of these Buddhist philosophies and the lessons that you've learned from, uh, especially from your struggles with climbing and, and facing fears. But uh, what do you suppose is the thing that, as a climber, as I read it, I was like delving. I'm like, well, what is what is in here for me? 
is is there a takeaway that you would would be pleased if 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 I had or if a climber has when they read this book and learn from your experiences something that I should uh you you would hope that I would take away from a book like The Mountain Path just to climb more more mi- more mindfully would be a beautiful start and and it and it doesn't even have to be a and all at once it can be a process of just noticing things i think that um everybody can notice moments to moment to moment while we, while they climb what do you, what's your thoughts thinking about everything you've been through you, i mean it's it's quite a it's quite a big idea to swallow and but i understand where it comes from this idea that you you know, you see this accident um, that almost killed you, that changed your life, um, you know, that made climbing forever, as you just said, something that's, you know, it's a challenge, but it's painful. Um, you lost the dance. Like, I, you know, I have to think a lot about that. I have to think a lot about someone like yourself that would look at that then and turn it into maybe the, you know, you you, you thank, give thanks to the rock that it's it's changed your life so much. It is a pretty extreme stance i know i know that but i think if something like this does happen to you it's the it's the best stance to take and and i think that that is also a stance that i can offer to to other climbers and other and other people in general because it it does open the door for absolutely living life to the full, and that doesn't mean living it at a million miles an hour, but just being present to every moment. You know, I, I, again, I haven't had a lot of time to think about this, but there was, you know, it it, it engenders in me just like uh, it, it just flashes into my head a like skepticism, like does he really think that? You know, is that you know when when you describe waking up in the morning and you know the the troubles that you have and getting out of bed and falling on the floor and, you know, having to uncurl your fingers. And I guess it's a mirror of my own maybe weakness in that where I would be like, I don't think I could, you know, I don't think I could praise the rock. I I just don't know if I could. And so I I think one thing that I was kind of curious about is the book is, is a lot about having arrived there, but how, how much struggle was there with that? Was in terms of accepting that in, in in a true way, like accepting it not just as a platitude, but as something that, you know, well, I think plat- central to platitudes, core, plat- so to speak. Platitudes can be useful. Cause if you if you say them every day, you you, you get to believe them, don't you? But but anyway, um oh <laughs> um <laughs> I climb five fourteen. I climb five fourteen. <laughs> Uh, anyway <laughs> oh no no I'll, I'll give that a go I, <laughs> bit that I wanted to say then I've lost it oh no 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 you had said that re- repeating platitudes uh, you get to believe the platitudes and the struggle I was wondering about um, again like arriving at this place of, oh, of yeah, yeah, truly no. believing this as a core part of your being so so this is what the this is what the this is what the book's about. The, the mountain path is not okay. really about my injury at all. It's about the fact that all these things in the, my whole journey leading up to that accident taught me so much about being mindful and, and about and about about coping with fear and about oh, everybody being 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 one entity. And so it doesn't make any sense to to hate because you're just hating yourself. And all that was with me when I when the rock hit me on the head. And so it took me a, a while to realise that. But that is what climbing can can teach one if you if you let it.
All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Paul for doing that and connecting and sharing wisdom about how to face challenges. Challenges much bigger than just red-pointing your latest project, for sure. So if you want to follow along with what Paul's up to, you can go to paulpritchard.com.au, and I'd highly recommend going back and checking out his first three books. I've read Deep Play and The Totem Pole, both extraordinary, both part of the canon, both award-winning And The Longest Climb is another Boardman Tasker award-winning book, so I'm sure it's exceptional. And of course, The Mountain Path is also available. It's published by Vertebrate Publishing, a UK house, but, uh, you know, it's available where you get your books. And uh, it's a pretty interesting book. It's pretty wild. And I think, especially if you're sort of one of those people who are searching for meaning in climbing, is it worth it? Or if you're burnt a little bit on it, or don't know exactly what you're up to when you're out there. I think it's a great read. Maybe give you a little direction. Bring you back on point. And finally, if Australia ever lets him out of the country, because Australia is very tight with COVID restrictions, then Paul hopes to go on a book tour. Maybe he'll come to the States. So check it out at his website. And of course, Paul Pritchard calls the totem pole accident You know, one of the best things that ever happened to him. But we're not all as strong as he is. So let's go ahead and avoid those kind of accidents as best you can. Look out for each other. Pay attention. Have situational awareness, as Conrad Anchor puts it, when you're climbing. And, of course, check your knots. You know where energy comes and goes in various places at various times? And Lamberis in North and Snowdonia, North Wales, uh, had been a, a place where climbers had gone over generations. And there was a 60s generation, which was kind of like a weird sort of hippie, you know, in some ways it sounds amazing, in some ways horrible. You know, except all these sort of hippie men doing the thing in the sort of the casualties, a very sort of high casualty sort of place. Uh, you get the impression sort of pretty full on but then that waned and then in the mid 80s the climbers came back to it again and Paul was kind of one of the leading people he brought a real spirit to the the place and was kind of the the main protagonist of that of the group including people like Johnny Dawes uh, Sleepy Haston Trevor Hodgson lots of other people like that but Paul to me seemed to be the sort of the uh the primary spirit of the of the place. The, these guys are all dressed really badly, really unhealthy. In that era, the mid eighties, I mean, it was a kind of fairly anarchic thing. And there's things like shoplifting was what they'd all do. All climbers, myself included, once you get into climbing, you realize things like shoplifting and stealing are part of the culture. And you would engage in this sort of story, things like that of misbehavior. And I guess Paul was very much in that world, but sort of also at the same time climbing incredibly bold routes, very very unphysical routes. Maybe in some ways I'm I'm no judge because I didn't climb at that standard, but typically more very dangerous, very adventurous climbs in fairly good style. And they're up, but really unhealthy people. Lots of alcohol, lots of late nights, parties, and then get up, wipe your eyes, and go and push it out in some crazy sea cliff somewhere. Like very living for the moment and very and when I first got into climbing that's the that was the legend you read about and that formed my impression of what climbing should be. So Paul was always at the centre of that. They're as I said, they're terrible dressers. Like really little, you know, laddered lycra tights. Jump I think it was Paul went to Waco Tanks one time and they all wore these blazers, British blazers and sports jacket. And he, he had one, and the sleeve had come away from it, but he'd wear the coat and wear the sleeve, even though the sleeve wasn't attached to the coat. And maybe wear two shirts underneath. It's, that whole uh, awful look was part of the whole thing. So there was, that, there was a culture around it, and there was the music. But Paul, Paul was an incredibly bold climber, but such a beautiful person. Like he's, he really always struck me as a very lovely, kind person, because all these... 
when you meet lots of top climbers, often there's self-obsession and their centerness of a, a scene or a clique turns them off a little bit from people around. And that's not always true. But Paul was somebody with whom you always felt you could go up and say hello and feel appreciated by. I've got a very high opinion of him and he seemed to put lots back into the sport and through his kindness and through his activities and which was eventually curtailed through accidents and he's taken that he gives now in different ways through his post-injury life and he seems very engaged in the world still but yeah lovely very a very very kind beautiful person who you'd happily spend time with